The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Sportbox. The headlines this hour, U.S. equity markets end a volatile session in the green and are on pace to close the week higher. This as the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, eases contagion fears in the banking sector. Europe's central banks continue their hiking paths, with the UK, Norway and Switzerland all lifting interest rates. The Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey says lenders appear to have weathered the storm. I don't think it's a repeat of 2008 at all. I'm confident that the banks, banks in this country are in a much stronger position. Their capital stronger, their funding is stronger. And so far, I think we've seen the signs that they've come through that uh, you know, robustly. European leaders warn against Beijing's creeping influence amid the war in Ukraine, telling CNBC the Xi-Putin relationship presents a challenge that cannot be ignored. China is certainly uh, moving uh, right now overtly on the side of Russia, and this is actually a very big challenge. China has come up with a peace proposal, uh, which, uh, of course, when we read it, there are elements in it which could be helpful, elements which are not so helpful, but here the devil is in the details. TikTok CEO gets a grilling on Capitol Hill as U.S. lawmakers threaten to ban the Chinese-owned social media app, but uh, insists they do not operate at the whim of Beijing. You can come and say whatever you want, as long as you don't violate the rules of safety that were put in place. And we, will, we also commit to be free of all and any government manipulation. And shares in Jack Dorsey's payments group Block Crater. This after the short seller Hindenburg Research accuses it of inflating user numbers and facilitating fraudulent transactions. So good morning, everybody. Good morning, Jeffrey. Good morning, Karen. Good morning to you, our loyal viewers, uh, all of you out there. Um, I've been looking at the phrase, pay the piper. And, and I was trying to work out where it came from. And it obviously came from uh, the Pied Piper of Hamlin's story. And it actually goes back to a poem on that from Robert Browning in 1842, which I wasn't aware of. It's amazing what you can find out on uh, a well-known search engine. Uh, and paying the piper is what I want to talk to you about. Because are the markets, are we uh, as, uh, I don't know, a bunch of economic watchers aware of the piper being paid yet, i.e. the consequences of a whole host of our actions are we now paying the piper or not? And is it still to come? Because let's just take a step back. The markets are doing pretty well considering. They've had an okay week today. We'll go straight to the week today. I don't mind doing that. I mean, for instance, Nasdaq's up 1.4% week today. Pretty glacial stuff, yeah? I think we're agreed. Considering we've got higher interest rates still, despite the fact that some of you are hoping now that um, the latest protestations from the Fed, and I think it's still arguable, say that we're done. And actually, there's going to be a rate cuts by the end of uh, this year, maybe, or maybe early next year. I think that's debatable still. We've got higher inflation. It's still pretty much there, isn't it, as well? If you look at the service sector data we had recently, I know some of you think it's transitory. And if you wait long enough, it will be transitory. But that could be a whole economic cycle. Uh, we've got higher 
debt concerns across the market, huge levels of debt going on. So higher inflation, higher debt, higher interest rates. We've also now begun to see creaks in the financial system as well. Uh, uh, some of the second tier banks, of course, in the United States, one of the big first tier banks here in Europe problems as well. And yet, are we net-net seeing the consequences of all that? When you look at the, the jobs data yesterday, I, I didn't think we were paying the piper at all. They're still stunningly robust. Let me get this right. We've had nine out of the last 10 weeks now, the jobless claims have been below 200,000. That is not what the Fed expected. And even technology, let's have a look at technology stocks as well. Technology is strong at the moment, by and large. It is leading the indices higher. It has led Kathy Wood to have a, a huge re-performance. You've got Netflix, is up 9% despite all their woes as well. You've got, what else have I, can I draw out for you here? Meta up 2.2% as well. And yet, technology stocks were the ones who apparently, because of the discounted cash flow models, were, were supposed to be struggling with the higher interest rates. Are they paying the piper? I don't know. Social media stocks, let's take a look at some of these as well. We've already looked at one or two of them. Look, Snap up 3%, Meta, I said 2.2%, Pinterest uh, up 0.5% of 1%. The banks, again, you know, yes, there's some declines on some of the major banks, but not a huge. Goldman's was actually up four times. Morgan Stanley was down 1.9%. Uh, and, and the volatility amongst this second tier, and I don't mean to be rude to them, they are the second tier of banks when you compare with the, the behemoths at the top as well. They are stunningly vital, uh, uh, um, volatile, but are we paying the piper yet? Have we even begun to see the implications? We haven't really talked about recession a lot yet, have we? I know everyone says, oh, it's going to be shallow, or we might even skirt it as well. Well, given some of the historic moves we've seen on rates as well and debt levels as well, and now potentially credit, and I'm indebted to Mr. Carl Weinberg, who's a great contributor to this show, also drew up Jeff and mine and Karen's attention to H8 data, which is due out later, which will show just how much credit uh, is being extended out there in the market. That comes, I think he said 4.15 Eastern time in the afternoon as well. So that could be very interesting. Let's have a look at the Asian indices anyway. Uh, Nikkei down 0.13, down mildly across the board as well. And the opening calls are negative, actually, for European indices. I'll get out of the way so you can see the Italians. 148 down, 46 down the Kakara. Oh, my goodness me, did you see what happened in Bordeaux yesterday? Oh, things are getting tasty out in France, I tell you. Down 69 points to Zetradax uh, and 48 points uh, the Footsman. I'm not a massive fan of Robert Browning. I've got to be honest. Mid-19th century poetry is not my bag, to be fair. I'm more of a Dickens man. But I have to wonder... If we are paying the piper, and I don't know if we are yet. Uh, preferably Robert Frost for me, but yes, um, yes. love a bit of Robert Frost. Or a bit Frost. of Tennyson. Uh, even. Um, Albert, Lord, and all the rest of <laughs> yes, it. Uh, but, but, I mean, paying the piper is, is a very interesting concept, I think, at this stage, because what are you paying for? What do you think people should be paying for? I mean, I was looking at the S&P, where we've come from on the all-time high. We're only 800 points away from that all-time high back in December of 2021. The consequences of our splurge, <clears throat> the consequences of what the central banks have had to do because they got it wrong at the start of the cycle and didn't realise the ramifications of longer-term inflation, and the consequences, uh, the debt inflation rates put together equals no recession, apparently, in many people's eyes. And that worries me. Do we need to split out the uh, outlook for the economy versus earnings, though, at this point? I think there are enormous question marks over the economic outlook after what we've heard from Jay Powell this week, the ability to price into the economic modelling what a credit crunch would look like if banks tighten their lending. What is the impact on the real economy? That's uh, far from clear at this point. But if you look at the earnings profile for some of the companies, they're still looking at uh, some fairly decent margins. You've had the, the drop in the oil story. We've been 
talking about that lately. You've seen some of these companies reprice around uh, some of their products and services. So they're sitting on fairly protected margins at this point. Could we see a different impact if the economy goes into some sort of recession, if it's shallow or not, but then you still see earnings protected at least third, fourth quarter this year? Isn't it weird? What kind of cycle are we actually going to have? Eric Norland is with us. Um, he's sitting around the desk, so we'll bring him in in just a moment because I know he's desperate to get involved in this conversation. But let me just fill in some of the background to what we're discussing. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sought to reassure Congress that American bank deposits are safe in her fourth statement to Congress this week after her Wednesday comments ruling out a deposit guarantee extension sparked a sell-off in regional banks stocks. Yellen said the government could step in again to back up customers' uh, money in failed banks if it judged them to pose a contagion risk. This didn't stop a slide in the KBW Regional Banking Index, which includes names like First Republic Bank and JP Morgan. US banks have increased their reliance on the Fed's post-SVB emergency lending program, total borrowing sitting at more than $50 billion as of Wednesday. That's up from just under $12 billion last week. Under the program, year-long loans backed by treasuries or other secure assets are extended, with the Fed paying full price for the assets, even if their market value has dropped. U.S. initial claims fell more than expected in the week to March 18th, down 1,000 to 191,000, suggesting this month's non-farm payrolls report could pose another headache for the Fed and merit a harsher-than-anticipated hiking path. It was a big day of central banking action in Europe yesterday with the Bank of England and the Norges Bank both lifting their key lending rates by 25 basis points in line with the Federal Reserve while the Swiss National Bank opted for a larger 50 basis point hike. All three central bank governors stressed this time is different to the financial crisis 15 years ago and argued that the banking sector is strong enough to withstand the instability that has rippled through markets this month. The government took measures, uh, we took measures, uh, FINMA took the, the measures, and now we have to take over. So it's extremely important that the takeover um, of Credit Suisse by UBS uh, will be finalised uh, smoothly. Uh, we have no doubts and the commitment is very big by both uh, players that that will go smoothly and we are supporting it uh, by our uh, liquidity measures. I don't think it's a repeat of 2008 at all. Yeah, we have part, we've obviously increased the regulation of the banking system since then. We learned a lot of lessons in the financial crisis. We keep learning lessons. Of course we keep learning lessons. That's natural in life. Um, but I'm confident that the banks banks in this country are in a much stronger position. Their, their capital stronger, their funding is stronger. And, and so far, I think we've seen the signs that they've come through that uh, you know, robustly. The authorities have implemented measures to, to limit the contagion uh, to other institutions and, and markets. Uh, and we have seen fairly limited uh, contagion to uh, Norwegian banks' uh, funding costs. We have no indications uh, that Norwegian banks are facing liquidity problems. And in general, they are both profitable, well-capitalized uh, and well-positioned to cope with the period of market turmoil or uh, larger losses. Eric Norland's joined our senior economist, CME Group. Eric, we just kicked off the conversation talking about some of the uncertainty, which I think highlights the market churn out there. The market saying, look, the Fed simply doesn't know at this point what's coming. So market participants could be right in their estimates of a, a downturn later this year, some sort of pause, even a pivot on rates. What's your view of how the economy plays out for the rest of this year? 
Right, well, I think right now we are in perhaps the most difficult period for economic forecasters, for policymakers, and for investors. Uh, because I think we're probably coming very close to the end of the tightening cycle. Um, in fact, if you look at the market's pricing at this moment, and I would preface this by saying market pricing can and has been changing very rapidly in the last month, but at this very moment, the market is basically saying that Wednesday's rate hike may have been the last one, um, and that the Fed could even be cutting interest rates as soon as July. But what makes this particularly difficult is if you look at the last, say, <coughs> six tightening cycles over the last four decades, four of those have resulted in recession. And the recessions typically began anywhere from 10 months to 18 months after the end of the tightening cycle. So if there were to be a downturn, it may not happen until 2024. One commentator put it this way, that the Fed keeps on hiking until it breaks something, but doesn't know whether it's broken something this time around with the banking crisis. So therefore may not be done as yet. And there still could be another 25 basis point hike on the table this year. What do you think? Has the Fed broken something when you look at all the events around SVB signature right across to Credit Suisse? Right. So I think in the case of SVB and Signature, they were broken by something very different. They were broken by a sort of internal decision not to hedge uh, risk on longer term bond holdings. Um, and that's what sort of ate through their capital. Um, but in terms of we haven't actually seen a sort of more generalized widening of credit spreads, nor have we seen a substantial pickup in defaults. And those are things that typically come further down the line. To give you an example, the Fed in their last really big tightening cycle ended in June 2006. We didn't really start seeing the big defaults until July 2007. 13 months later, and officially the recession didn't begin until December 2007, which was 17 months after the end of the tightening cycle. So it was just really early to say. Eric, one of the problems with the timing here is, is the rate of inflation is not falling as quickly as the central bankers hoped. And we've just seen in the UK example, another spike which has undermined all of the arguments that the bank was making about its ability to move to a pause and so on and so forth. It seems to me it's very hard to make calls on when the next cut happens, given that we can't even figure out when we get back to the 2% target rate that the central banks are all pursuing. Isn't there a risk that if inflation proves to be more stubborn and more sticky, that we actually are going to be years away from a cut? rather than the timing that you've suggested. Well, you know, that's certainly possible. And if you look at the forward curve one month ago, just on the eve of Silicon Valley Bank's uh, failure, uh, at that point, the forward curve was saying the Fed might hike four more times and keep hiking rates through July. And since then, as you point out, we've gotten pretty bad inflation data in Europe and in the U.S. since then. I mean, core CPI in the U.S. was up half a percent. Um, in Europe and the U.S., you, consider, you continue to see very, very strong wage growth and very, very low productivity growth. And ultimately, inflation over the long term is the difference between those two numbers. Mm. And if you have wages growing at 5.5% in Europe and a productivity growing at maybe 0 to 1%, you may well be looking at 4% inflation, which could make it very difficult to cut rates. The, um, I mean, the history of the, the four major bear markets of the last 120-odd years or whatever is that in reality, equity investors don't start to get interested until there is real price stability. And we, we see the end of the deflation that is caused by spiking interest rates. In terms of your perception of when equity investors may begin to 
bite again. How far away do you think that likely is, given the challenges of, of actually, you know, dealing with the recession that the central banks themselves may be causing, even as inflation refuses to return to the 2% target? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's a very difficult one to answer because you know, typically equity markets do start rebounding uh, long before a recession is over. They kind of see uh, the writing on the wall, but I think most often the equity markets uh, go into strong rebounds sometime after a policy easing has begun. Um, and so we're still in a tightening phase in most of the world, um, or at least in an on-hold phase at best. Um, but I don't think any central bank at this point is seriously considering lowering rates, despite what the forward curve may believe about the likelihood of them doing so in the future. Why is the oil price at 69.93 on WTI and Brent at 75.85? It's, it's not low, but it's a damn sight lower than what a, the, a lot of the experts in the energy space thought it would be. Is that flashing, actually, despite all the supply concerns that they told us would take us to $120, and it hasn't really. It, it was there briefly at the start of the war as well. Is it telling us that a recession is coming? Yeah, I don't know if it's really telling us a recession is coming. I think it's probably more specific to what's happening in the oil market itself. What's happening in the oil market itself is very interesting um, because uh, what you're seeing around the world is you're seeing actually fairly generously high levels of oil inventories uh, for crude oil. Um, so crude oil inventories are basically kind of about the same level as they were at this time in 2021, as we were just starting to come out of the very worst phases of the pandemic lockdown. And they're actually much higher than they were at this time last year, and much, time, much higher than they were at this time back in 2019, mm -hmm. uh, the year before the pandemic. Now, by contrast, refined product inventories are very, very low. Um, so you're not seeing such high inventories for uh, diesel and gasoline, and the spread between those products and crude oil is quite wide, yeah. uh, which is why consumers aren't really seeing the benefit necessarily of lower crude oil prices. But, but in terms of what has to give them, what, what does give here? Because again, I, I've heard the argument and from a lot of commentators that when it's the refined products that is where the squeezes are and hence the underlying crude price has to rally. But, but can it actually work the other way as well? Actually, demand will drop off for those refined products as we go into some form of stagnation or, re or recession even as well. And actually then the oil price, despite the fact that the Russians are trying to take barrels off the table, despite that and this war going on, actually the oil price goes lower from here, despite everyone telling us, it, again, you know, and there's some brilliant analysts out there and some people have been right many times, are getting it badly wrong at the moment. We know the kind of names we're talking about. Yeah, well, I think that oil is very much in the cross-currents. There's a number of things you have to consider. So on the one hand, yes, Russia might like to take some barrels off the table. But on the other hand, it's not clear that OPEC is going to be willing to cooperate with that and also reduce production. They may be quite happy at their current production levels. In addition, the countries outside of OPEC, including the United States, have seen their production levels slowly drifting yeah. higher. Um, and so they, of course, have you know, every interest to keep pumping so long as the price is above their cost of production. And you know, $69 to $75 per barrel is very profitable for a lot of U.S. producers. Can I ask you finally about the ramifications of other central banks this week? We just started out the show talking about the three central banks in Europe. It feels as though everybody's been taking their cue from the Fed. But we've had, obviously, a bigger rate hike from the SMB, but they haven't done as much as some of the other central banks. What happens from here? If the outlook for the Fed is uncertain, what happens to these other central banks? Are they also on hold? 
So I, I think that they're less likely to stay on hold, and I think they're more likely to continue raising rates. Even um, the ECB? Even the ECB. So if you look at the ECB versus the Fed, um, they both have core inflation at around 5.5%. I think it's 5.5 in the U.S., 5.6 in the euro area. But the Fed's now got their rate up to nearly 5%. Um, where the ECB has a rate at 3.5%. That's still 210 basis points below core inflation. Um, so there's a very real possibility that they continue to hike. And in fact, in recent months, you know, they've been hiking in 50 basis points increments, where the Fed's slowed down to just 25. We said to seen doesn't around foreign exchange, uh, which we've had a big move in this week with the dollar declining. So uh, perhaps that explains some of the story. Eric, we've got to let you go, but thanks so much for coming in. Good to see you this hour. Uh, Eric Norland, senior economist at the CME Group. Uh, still to come on the programme, European leaders vow to ramp up ammunition supplies to Ukraine. As the group discusses China's role in the war, we'll have more on that from Brussels when we come back. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Spain's Prime Minister says he'll discuss China's peace plan for the Russia-Ukraine war when he visits Beijing next week. Speaking ahead of his meeting with President Xi, Pedro Sanchez said it was critical to know Beijing's position on the war and to uphold the UN Rights Charter, which demands respect for territorial integrity. Sanchez's comments come as EU leaders discuss China's role in the war and their relationship with Beijing. Um, let's unpick this uh, in some more detail. Sylvia is with us now uh, from Brussels. And, and Sylvia, what might we expect now going forward in terms of additional support for Ukraine? Well, first and foremost, let me just say that uh, the leaders did agree to send more ammunition to Ukraine. They agreed to buy ammunition together in the coming months, over the next 12 months. So, indeed, they're putting into action what they promised to President of Ukraine, Vladimir, Vladimir Zelensky, when he was here in Brussels last month. But let me just address the Chinese angle in this context as well, because, of course, earlier this week, we saw that important meeting between the Chinese leader and the Russian leader in Moscow. And when you look at it from a European perspective, this is quite challenging for the EU, because if you remember some of the comments from those two leaders, they did address one another as dear friend, and it did come across as they are quite close in uh, at this moment in time. But when you look at it from a European perspective, these, these European leaders are wondering what they should do about it and whether this is a moment to rethink their relationship with China. The problem for the Europeans is, on the one hand, 
some member states want to deepen their economic ties with China. And let's not forget that China is one of the most important trading blocks for the EU. But on the other hand, they're seeing this closeness between China and Russia while getting pressure from the Americans that they need to be more critical of Beijing. So what is the EU going to do amid all of these dynamics? And so I posed some of those questions to the European leaders here in Brussels yesterday. And the Prime Minister of Latvia was very clear to say that the EU needs to address and needs to rethink the relationship it has with Beijing. The Chinese uh, 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 president's visit, I, I think this is uh, symbolic from the Chinese uh, point of view. Uh, I think that uh, certainly in any relationship, the driving uh, seat is China's, not Russia. Uh, and so the question is uh, where the Chinese will want to drive this relationship or not. Uh, but uh, I, I think it is a little bit of an eye-opener uh, for us in Europe because uh, if uh, maybe many, many people were, were hoping that China could somehow uh, be uh, or take the, the role of a broker, uh, China is not doing this at all. China is certainly uh, moving uh, right now overtly on the side of Russia. And this is actually a very big challenge and a big difficulty for all of us. But all in all, there's division within the EU on how to work with China. And proof of that is this comment from the Luxembourg prime minister saying that he's not going to do China bashing just for the sake of it. It's not new. China uh, was a partner, is still a partner, but it's also a competitor. And uh, the fact is that we need rules that uh, are respected from both sides. And I remember having discussions with uh, the China side when they, they think that we have to accept their rules, but they don't accept our rules. And it's important to, to have uh, common rules and have a level playing field. But uh, I don't want to do China bashing just for China bashing. It's the same for TikTok. In my country, TikTok is still not forbidden. I don't forbid TikTok because it's Chinese. But if I have evidences that there is something, I will ban it. But I, I'm not in favor of doing bashing or banning uh, without uh, having evidences. And the same, I asked the Commission to give me the information why they decided to ban, and I'm still waiting for the answers. So the first day of this European summit was definitely dominated by geopolitics. But in the second day, there were about to witness the witness of conversations among the EU leaders. The focus is actually on the economy. And one of the main questions that we have for the European leaders is how they feel about the recent banking turmoil. They will be discussing that with the president of the European Central Bank. Christine Lagarde will be joining the EU leaders later this morning. So let's see what will come out of those conversations as well. Terrific. Thank you so much for that, Sylvia. And for more on this, uh, check out Sylvia's piece on how leaders across the region are divided on the implications of China's relationship with Russia. You can find that piece on CNBC.com. French protesters set the main entrance of the Bordeaux town hall ablaze on Thursday as previously peaceful resistance to President Macron's plans to raise the French retirement age by two years turns violent. Police fired tear gas to repel mobs as nationwide protests entered their ninth day. Interior Minister Gerard Darmanin says 149 people have been arrested across France. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.